I'd like to invite the kids to head to the back. Um, and as they do that, I'll open us up in prayer for our sermon. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that in all things, we can count on you. Father, we pray now for um, this part of the service. We pray that you speak to all of us. We pray for your Holy Spirit and grateful for its presence here. We thank you for the things that testify forever of who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done, and what it means for us. God, help us to be a people surrendered to the Spirit. Help us to be a people empowered by the Spirit. Help us to be a people who live only by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Every Bible's with you. I always say that, but then I realize people don't bring Bibles to church anymore because that's too crazy, right? Who would bring a Bible to church? Um, but we do have them up here. Um, so we have the scripture up here, 1 John 5, 1 to 12. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn there as well. Um, this is John's closing, really. In 1 John 5, 1 to 12, we read, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You know, last week I stated how we started 1 John three years ago, and now we're wrapping it up. And John, like every good writer, um, some of us are really, really good about reading the backs of a book, and then we'll tell you what the book's all about. Um, in our context, I guess, maybe it's watching movie trailers, and then we'll tell you what the movie's all about and make our decision to see that movie based on the 30-second trailer, right? Um, so for those who are good at reading about the backs of the book, this is where 1 John 5 is. Here, he's going to summarize everything he's been talking about in these four verses, in these four chapters before. And one of his closing thoughts, he shares three or four of them here this, throughout the chapter. Um, but one of the ones is this thing we've been talking about for a while now. And John seems to think that right belief of Jesus matters, right? Who you think about Jesus and accepting who Jesus is is actually very, very essential to your faith. John um, uh, talks about this, and I was reminded, you know, when I was about 15, I started reading C.S. Lewis, which I guess that's what 15-year-olds do. Um, but Lewis had this concept of when you look at Jesus, and he says, all of us, you know, no matter what we say or what we say we believe, and not just in our hearts or our minds, but in our lives, how we choose to live, we're all choosing to make Jesus either Lord, either a liar, or he's a lunatic, right? And I think Lewis was a writer, so he loved alliteration. So Lord, liar, lunatic. And what's fascinating about that is it's a call and it's a reminder to all of us 
Because it's not about just saying Jesus is Lord. You know, that's not a one-time thing we say and then we're done with, right? When we say Jesus is Lord, we're ascribing him to be the Lord of our life. When we say Jesus is Lord, it's not a decision we make. It's a decision we make all the time. It's not a one-time thing you say and then he's Lord and you let it go. But when you say Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is I pledge my life to you. I pledge myself to you. And then... You spend the rest of your life making him Lord of everything. What are your hopes and dreams? Is Jesus the Lord of that? What are your gifts, skills, and abilities? Is Jesus the Lord of that? What are the resources that you have at your disposal? Is Jesus the Lord of that? What is the networks that you're fighting to be in and, and to, to be propped up and to be re, like respected in, right? It's Jesus the Lord of that. When you say Jesus is Lord, please, sisters and brothers, don't make it a one-time thing. Pledge to make it an everyday thing, an every interaction thing, an every relationship thing, everywhere we go thing. Is Jesus Lord? Because if he's not Lord of all these things, John says it clearly here, then he's a liar. But you know what I've realized is that it's not so much God's a liar, it's perhaps we are. Because we're really good at saying Jesus is Lord, and then we're even better at making our relationship with him on a need-to-know basis. We're really good at saying Jesus is Lord, and we're really good at only going at him when we think we need him, after we've exhausted ourselves. But if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, then we have to ascribe him Lordness in everything that we are, everything that we hope, everything that we do. So John's question seems to be, C.S. Lewis says here, how you live is going to show is Jesus Lord of your life? Or maybe you just think he's this crazy lunatic or he's a liar. But John seems to think who Jesus is matters. And you have to understand who Jesus is. So he tells us who Jesus is. The first one he says is Jesus is God and we knew him. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that heaven always comes down. And I don't know how we get good about this in our faith, but somehow along the way, we think the Bible and faith and Christianity is about how we get to heaven, right? So many of us say, you know, God, I got to work on this, 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 and this, and then I'll be ready. Or, you know, God, I got to read my Bible more, and then I'll be a better Christian. Or, God, I got I to gotta make sure I only have Christian influences because the world's so bad, so I got to be my Christian silo. You know, we're in farmland, so silo, right? Some of us are really good about all the things we need to do before we're ready. But here's a, here's a little um, a free gift for us all. We will never, ever be ready. The Bible, Christianity, Jesus Christ, isn't about you being perfect and ready enough. Because guess what, sisters and brothers? Heaven always comes down. That's the story of Jesus this morning, is that God will always meet you where you're at. And some of us, you know, we might have a good outside exterior, but some of us might be drowning this morning in some aspect of our life. But praise God, why? Heaven always comes down to pick us up. And some of us might just be trying and treading water this morning. We're looking all around at the storms all around us, or maybe the fires that are raging inside of us or around us, and some of us are fighting to tread water. But praise God, why? Heaven always comes down. And some of us, maybe we're swimming. Right? Maybe we're just enjoying a nice little, well, I guess you don't think a stroll in the pool, but maybe we're just swimming along, right? 
and life is going to happen where you might get a little bumpy waters eventually. But praise God, why? Heaven always comes down. That's the, that's the secret. One of the secrets of our faith is that we have a God who will always meet us where we're at. It's not about us being perfect and ready and getting to the point where he's ready to love us. He's already there because heaven always comes down. The joy of Jesus being God is that the one who lived in radiance chose to take on skin. That the one who dwelled in eternity humbled himself to dwell in time. That the creator God entered into his creation. That's the power of Jesus come down. And John says, Jesus is God and we knew him. How amazing it is that we can know God. But then John also was very, very adamant. It was Jesus was a man and we witnessed him. You know, songwriter um, Audrey Assad says, looking at the humility of Jesus, she says, he was not too proud to wear our skin. He was not too proud to enter into this weary world. He was not too proud to enter into brokenness. He was not too proud to enter into darkness. But what's fascinating about our world is that we're very proud of our skin, is that we're very proud about being better than the weary world, is that we're really proud that we don't have that kind of brokenness. We're very proud about not having that kind of darkness. But the truth is, we have a God who doesn't scoff at people's brokenness. We have a God who doesn't turn his nose up at darkness. We have a God who's the humble, humble savior of the world. We have a God who's really good about being Jesus and not the Pharisees. You know, a lot of us tend to be Pharisees when we see darkness in this world, when we see brokenness in ourselves or the people around us. A lot of us tend to be really good at telling people all the things they're not, all their ways they're not. But if Jesus is Lord and he's your humble Savior, then sisters and brothers, Jesus cannot just be the one we worship. He's got to be the one we've witnessed. Jesus cannot just be the one we, we aspire to, like, oh, man, he's so wonderful and great. Jesus has to inspire us because if Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord and we're following him, then we have to do what he did. So when we see darkness, we have to go into it with the light. When we see brokenness, we have to go in it and say, with the Spirit's help, we can heal. When we see a world that's not as it should be, we should say that's okay. With God, we can help it be what he wants it to be. Jesus has to be the one we worship, the one we've witnessed, and the one who inspires us. John says you have to have right view of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing. John also, in these closing thoughts, talks about the fact that we are the family of God. And he builds on this beautifully. He starts with just saying, you know what? Belief in Jesus makes you a child of God. And one of the things that's most fascinating about that is most of us who grew up in church or been coming to church, we've heard that before. I've been born again. I'm a child of God. But John says, do you really understand what that means? Because if you're a child of God, you will now know that you're no longer considered a sinner before God. You are now a saint. How many of us are still defined by who we used to be? How many of us are so defined by all the things we lack? How many of us are so defined about not being good enough? Because if I truly believe in Jesus and what he's done, I'm no longer a sinner. I've been made a saint. 
I'm no longer an enemy of God. I've been made a friend. I'm no longer far from God and reaching for God, but I've accepted that the blood of Jesus Christ has brought me near. That I who was lost have now been found. If I truly believe that Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord, I'm now a child of God. Do we take time to know what that means and to hold on to it and to praise God and sing hallelujah? You know, one of the other things that's fascinating about being born again is that God wants us to hold on to the fact that we're being made new. How many of us are dwelling in who God is and what he's done for us? How many of us are looking at what we used to be and where we are now? Instead of looking at all the places we lack, how many of us are saying, God, thank you for progress? God, thank you for these baby steps I'm taking right now. Because of our relationship with God, our relationship with the people around us, it's only based on where we lack and what we fall short. We will never see ourselves the way God sees us. And how does God sees us? He says, you're my masterpiece. You're my workmanship. You're my child. When we look at God, how many of us walk past a mirror and say, I'm God's masterpiece? How many of us, when we're talking and we're we're feeling down and low, are reminded by the Spirit that says, no, 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 no. You're the reason he loves. You're how he loves. You're why he loves. You're the object of his love. Belief in Jesus makes you a child of God. Belief in Jesus also makes you a member of the family of God. A lot of us have made belief in Jesus only by me and mine, or my relationship with God. We do well to remember that God so loved the world. We do well to remember that God has always had a plan for all the nations, for all the people. We do well to remember that in Christianity, it's not about you. It's about us. It's not about me. It's about we. It's always about all of us. So while it's good to work on your relationship with Jesus, The primary reason that Jesus came isn't just for you, it's for us. So part of your relationship with Jesus is figuring out what is God doing among us? What is God doing in this world and how can I join in? You know, in Hebrews 11, we have this great chapter in the church I grew up in. You know, we used to call this the Hall of Fame of Faith, right? And I've always had this pride thing that I've been working on for 35 years, right? So I would read that, and that's how I read the Bible. I like to jump in it. You know, I would read that and be like, how come they get to be in the Hall of Fame, right? And what's fascinating about Hebrews 11 is, you know, you have men and women, right? There's not too many lists in the Bible that exalts people that has men and women. And if you look a little bit closer, you'll see that as men and women from all around the world, right? And it's fascinating. It's almost like God always cared about the world. It's crazy, I know. But in Hebrews 11, I always used to struggle with, like, how come they get in? Where's our place? Where do we get in? Until I kept reading the chapter and I got to the end, and there's this promise made by the writer of Hebrews where he says, Yeah, these people are great, basically. (laughs) But God has created something better for you. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, we win. (laughs) Like, you get to be the old Hall of Fame, but we're the new Hall of Fame. And what I was thinking about was this simple idea that God has something greater. So it's not just about being members of God's family. It's that we get to be family with God. One of those great saints in Hebrews 11 is Abraham. And I love Abraham, but I used to wonder, like, how come God choose him? You know, he's just in the middle of nowhere doing nothing. Then you read the story of Abraham, and you realize that this guy had a special kind of faith. You know, a lot of people think that the highlight of Abraham's faith was Isaac, right? 
But that never made sense to me. I was just like, at that point, Abraham had been so much that I really think he thought God would have resurrected his son or sent him another son. I don't really think that's the big deal with Abraham. The big deal is the beginning. You remember how they started that relationship, right? It's a relationship where God's like, hey, Abraham or Abram. You know, it's like, hey, person I don't know, right? And it's like, I need you to go. Where, person who's talking to me? To the place where I will show you, right? That's how the relationship begins. How many of us have that kind of relationship with God, right? How many of us want God to give us plan A, B, C, D, take our suggestions for E before we're ready to go on to F, right? Like Abraham only had, I will take you to the place where I will go. And he says, well, that sounds about right, right? All of us in this room, right? If someone came to us and told us that, we would probably think they're a little off. And that's saying it graciously, right? But one of the things I love about Abraham is that he's remembered, not simply for his faith, but in the Old and the New Testament as a friend of God. You know, we've talked a lot about how, you know, John was Jesus' best friend. I think you can make a similar case that of all the people in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the one that had the bond the deepest is probably Abraham. I think there's a reason why the quote-unquote major religions of this world all call him father. I think Abraham had a special place in God's heart. Friendship matters. But John is kind of pointing something different. He says, you know what? Friendship is great. But no matter what, family will always trump friendship. And this is hard for some of us because we don't all come from perfect families, right? We don't all come from families that that are like what we dream of, right? But you have to understand what John means by family. Michelle and I got married, and it was was, was years ago now, but I remember we had these, you know, six people on each side. And and the first thought I had of my my, my six group of guys who were up front was like, man, they're like the United Colors of Benetton. That was my first thing. If you don't remember Benetton, you can Google it later. You'll see. But the second thing I remember was that these six friends of mine had really been brothers to me, that they had shown me who Jesus is, that they had grown my faith, that they had challenged me. And I thought friendship was the highlight of everything. But John seems to think, man, it's great when you can be a friend of God, but it's even better when you can become family with God. And John says, you know what? What makes us family is blood. And in our context, we can understand that, right? You might say blood is thicker than water. But what John's pointing to is that the blood that was shed on Calvary's tree is what makes us family. So he's saying our allegiance not only has to be to God, it has to be to every single person who believes. Because if they believe in Jesus Christ, they are members of your family. They're the ones who will be with you forever. And John seems to think, how can you say you love God, but you don't love the people who are sitting next to you? I think as Christians, we're really good at looking out there. but not good at looking in here. I think we're really good at telling the world everything it's not, but not good at saying, what are we doing? And John always is calling us back. How can you say you love God, but you don't love your sister who's sitting next to you? How can you say you belong to God, but your sister and brother who's sitting next to you, you don't belong to? How can you say that you're following God when you don't love the people he died for? John seems to think the blood of Christ matters more than the blood that flows through our veins. Do we live the same way? As if we live the same way, then we'll love God. And if we love God, then we'll love his family. And if we love God, then we have to love his son, Jesus, who came from God. And if we love Jesus, we'll have to love the church. And John says, I can't even tell you how to love God. You know, everyone's like, yeah, what does this mean? Why do we love God? And time and time again, he says, 
loving God is keeping his commandments. What's fascinating is in Matthew, Jesus talks about, you know, the yoke. You know, it's like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And even as a kid, I read that, I was just like, I don't think Jesus can lie, but I'm struggling with this one. You know, like, are we sure it's light? It seems a little heavy to me, right? It seems a little hard to me. But I think what I've learned in 20 plus years of following Jesus is that if it's only about what I can do, on my own to please God, it will always feel burdensome. If it's only about how perfect I can be or how righteous I can be on my own, it will always feel heavy. But if it's about me taking a step back and saying, Jesus is Lord and I trust him. If it's about me saying the Holy Spirit is alive and well and I trust him to live in me, to breathe in me, to breathe on me, to pour out through me, to make me more and more like Jesus. And I think what I've also learned is what John is simply saying. If you love God and you want to follow God, you have to keep his commandments. And it has to start with what you know to do. Right? I think a lot of us make following God something that it's not, or, or we ascribe all these different things to it. John seems to think, just start with the stuff he's asked you to do and do it. Right? Everything that God's commanded you to do, do it. And that's enough for a lifetime. Right? A lot of us think following God is X, Y, and Z. John seems to think, it's like, what did Jesus say? Do it. How did Jesus live? Live that way. How did Jesus love? Love that way. You know, following God, this is going to be real deep. Hopefully you got your seatbelts on. Ready? Following God is following God. Right? Like, you know, a lot of um, a, a, a group that came out probably in the last decade, and they called themselves Red Letter Christians, and it, it's, it's good, right? A lot of people I read in the faith and trust in the faith, they belong to this group. And, and but the last three or four years, I've kind of been thinking about, you know, they call themselves Red Letter Christians, and they're trying to, like, be apart from it. And I'm like, you know, what's fascinating about that is, some of us have been red-letter Christians for like 500 years, right? Like they, 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 they kind of run away from this Anabaptist label and they're making it red-letter Christians. And I want to kind of like get to one of them and be like, listen, when I say I'm brethren in Christ, I'm very proud to be brethren in Christ because that's how I see and understand God. People look at me like I'm crazy, right? I told you I'm working on this pride thing, but you know what I tell them? I'm like, what's brethren in Christ? I was like, you know, everything you really love about Christianity, that's what we've always done. That's us. You know, it's very humble retort, right? But it helps put them in their place. Again, I'm working on pride. <laughs> but the fascinating thing about being red-letter Christians is we've always been a people who've pledged to follow what Jesus says. We've always been a people who look at, you know, Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We're like, that's a good place to start. If you're wondering this morning, what does it mean to follow God? Start reading Matthew 5 to 7 and start living it. I promise you it'll take a lifetime. But I also promise you that we have the spirit to help you. And I promise you that God will make you and mold you into who he desires you to be. Because following God is following God. You know, 50 cars are outside and all of us have these 50 cars. And, and I say, let's go to Pittsburgh, right? And, and, and one of you because you know there's always one. One of you goes the wrong way on a turnpike and 49 of us ends up in Pittsburgh. None of us will say, you know, that one person was following the caravan. We make following God something that's so hard and it's so un 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 undoable. But I think the answer is simply doing what he's asked. And here's the thing. All of us in this room have a different understanding of what God asks of us. And all I'm saying to you this morning is do what he's asked of you. 
If God has told you that you have to love your neighbor, not as, or treat them not as you want to be treated, but love them as he's loved them, maybe that's where you start. If God's saying, you know, this morning that my son Jesus Christ is the one in whom I'm well pleased and your only way to salvation is confessing your sins and making him Lord of your life, maybe that's where you got to start. If God says, you know what, your allegiance to the family of God has to trump your allegiance to any and everything else, maybe that's where you start. Everything that God has asked you to do is what he wants you to do. And here's the, the, the harrowing part. And this part motivates me, but also terrifies me. But everything that you understand that God wants you to do, he's going to hold you accountable for doing it or not doing it. So it's not just about knowing, right? We're very good in our culture about making about knowledge. It's not just about knowing what God says. We have to be about doing it. So John is saying all these things in 1 John 5. What you think about Jesus matters. He's God and he's man. That's wonderful. We are the family of God. That's amazing. Love God is keeping God is keeping his commandments. That's awesome. But what's fascinating is this entire chapter doesn't just have a recap, but John says something new. And that new thing comes in verses 6 to 8 where he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three to testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. What's fascinating about this is that Christians have raged for over 2,000 years as to what exactly did John mean, right? Now, one of the things we can break down is, first of all, he says there's three things, right? The Holy Spirit will always testify of who Jesus is. The water will always testify of who Jesus is. The blood will always testify of who Jesus is. And those of us who grew up in church, we hear this world eternal a lot. And I, I don't even think, I think we just go, oh, that's forever, you know? But this idea that this testimony goes forever is that, you know, it exists without beginning and without end. That means that the cross, the blood, will always, without end, point you to Jesus. But that also means the water, whatever that means, should point you to Jesus. And the Spirit's work is to point you to Jesus. And witnessing is another word we hear a lot. And it's about serving evidence of, right? But we're in church. You know what that means? Testify. That means the spirit will always testify of God. The blood and the water should always testify of God, and they should do it forever. Now, we think we know what the spirit is. One of the greatest blessings of Christianity is that all of us have come into the faith through the spirit. You know, we do well to remember God the Father made the plan for salvation and set it into motion. We do well to remember that Jesus went up to Calvary's tree. We do well to remember that the gospel of Jesus isn't just the blood, right? The gospel is that God on high came and lived on earth and showed us how to live and love to please God, right? And then he died on the cross, but praise God, after three days he was raised up. And that our God is alive, and that our God is coming back. We do well to remember all those things, but here's another secret. You know why we remember, or how we remember, or why we remember? It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who's revealed God to us. The Spirit is the one who's speaking in our hearts even this morning. The Spirit is the one who's alive and knitting us together as one. So we think we know the Spirit. But what's fascinating to me is that Christians for thousands of years don't know what it means by water and blood. So we do what all great scholars do. We go to the people who said it first. Some of them, you know, like aspire to Luther and Calvin, you know, and they're like, yeah, these are two great people in the faith, Luther and Calvin, what they say. 
when they thought about the water and the blood, they said, well, obviously that's the sacraments, you know? Obviously it's baptism, we got that one, and the blood has to be communion. And what's fascinating about that, and I don't know, I mean, Luther and Calvin did a lot of good, but they also did a lot of bad. If you don't like it, it's okay. I'm an Anabaptist that killed my people for 500 years. We're working on it. But Luther and Calvin, they missed this idea, though, that if it's only about the sacraments, right, was John really talking about communion? Was Jesus, when he said, you have to be born of the blood and the blood in John 3 to Nicodemus, was he talking about communion? See, I think what Luther and Calvin miss is that it is not about the sacraments, that Jesus isn't saying through the sacraments you enter into the kingdom. This is very, very fascinating. I know some of you are like, I don't really care. But it's true. People for 500 years and thousands of years have believed that this is how we enter into the kingdom. It's through the sacraments. But I will offer my humble opinion that I don't think Luther and Calvin are right on this. The other one that's actually fascinating is, is another guy, you know, and this pains me a little bit, right? Because a lot of, um, you know, what we call Western Christianity is really African. I'm going to put that in a book someday and you'll buy it and it'll be great. But it's true, Right? <laughs> And one of the most fascinating things about what we formed in Western Christianity is this guy named Augustine, St. Augustine, some people call him, right? And, and, you know, he did a lot of good, too. Some of the bad we're still fighting with, which is hilarious because we're pacifists, you know? But he has this just war thing that we just ignore the just part and do war, but that's another thing. But St. Augustine, when he looked at this passage, he goes, well, obviously, John was present at Jesus' death. And when Jesus died, you know, they stabbed him in the side and water and blood came out. So obviously, that's what John is talking about. Jesus is born by water and the blood. But I don't think that's right. And even though he's my African brother, I think he could be wrong on this. There's some people who, who've been more, you know, poetic and, and more about, you know, the, the, the language and the use of language. And they said, well, obviously, water here, you know, talks about the womb of life that Jesus was born in, and, and the blood is then the death, right? Then there's people who say, you know, it's a good thing that we're using all these people after the fact, but what did the original Christians do, right? So some people then go to John. They said, what was John fighting against? And John was fighting against people who believed. And what's fascinating to me is that these people are still alive and well today. Right? But people who believe that Jesus wasn't God and man at the same time. There's people who believe that at the baptism, the Spirit came upon him, then he lived a godly life, but then when he died, the Spirit left him. Right? And it doesn't help when we sing hymns like, you know, the Father turns his face away, right? But they believe that the Spirit left them and God left them on the cross because God cannot die. And John would seem to think that's not true. And I hope we as Christians would think that's not true, that God did die but he died for us, and that he chose to die. It wasn't just this pain and suffering that the Father inflicted upon him, but that he gave of himself for us. So what is right? Well, I think if you're in doubt, if one African church father gets it wrong, you try another one, right? And Tertullian was one of the first ones that says, maybe we need to go back to what Jesus said. Did Jesus ever talk about being born of the water and the blood? And wouldn't you know, we're really good at talking about John 3.16, but we forget the first 15 verses. And in that first 15 verses, you have Nicodemus come to Jesus. And this is one of the most amazing passages in Scripture to me because Nicodemus represents everything that Jesus is supposed to not like. He was powerful. He was influential. He was rich. He was a Pharisee. He was part of the ruling class that, that questioned everything that Jesus did, that, that terrorized him his whole life, that killed him, really, that tried to destroy his ministry, yet Jesus makes a way to let him into the kingdom. If that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. 
everything that represents that what Jesus was not, Jesus still took time to meet with him and to usher in the kingdom through him and by talking to him why I've really come. So before you get to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you must be reminded that John, that Nicodemus, Jesus said to Nicodemus himself, I have come by water and blood. So what is the water? It's baptism. And what we're saying this morning, what John is saying is that forever until Jesus comes again, baptism will be a witness that Jesus is God. A couple months we're going to have a baptism service, one of my favorite services in the church. And I think as a Christian, it's really hard to go to a baptism service and not be moved. Because that baptism, what you see is you hear people who say, this is who I was. Praise God, this is who I am now. At baptism, you hear people who said, I used to live this way, but God has changed me. God has transformed me. But when Jesus is saying, I am born of the water, it means that Jesus didn't need to get baptized. But he also didn't need to come. He chose to get baptized to say, I'm identifying with you. I'm identifying with humanity. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And just like he was raised up out of the water, baptism is what we give to this world as a forever witness that our God transforms. And one of my dreams is that we become a baptizing church. And that sounds very churchy, but I'll just say that. That's what Jesus says. Go and make disciples of the nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost. This morning, we have an eternal witness in baptism. So this is why we disciple. That's why we tell people about Jesus. And that's why this morning, if you haven't been baptized, I want to invite you to think about that because when you step up and you be baptized you're making an eternal witness before the body before the witnesses who forever lived and before the world around you that Jesus is Lord and he's changed my life but the blood talks about Jesus's death and that's what it represented it was funny when I was in college and I grew up in a, a pretty judgmental Christianity it took me a while to, to shed my life from it and, and part of this judgmental was you know you know we didn't really care about the heart we cared about the outside a little bit too much you know one of the things we didn't care about was tattoos right I remember when I was in college at good old Messiah College one of my friends came to me and they're like yo I got a tattoo and I was just like mm, really you're supposed to be a Christian you know I didn't say it out loud because I also grew up in a very political family so we we play poker with our face a lot so I was just like mm, look at this one and I was like, so, so let me get this straight. You got a tattoo for, for what? And he was just like, so I can be reminded that Jesus loves me and Jesus died for me. And I was like, well, I mean, I can't really push back on that too much. You know, <laughs> it's just like, like I was ready. You know, I had my judgmental 305 retorts, you know, like I had all the things to tell him how much of a sinner he was. But when he said that, I was just struck and I was just like, huh. So what I think, though, that reminds me of is this idea when we think about the blood, all of us would do well to find mementos that remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done. Look at the Old Testament people, the New Testament people. They were all very, very intentional because they know we as people tend to forget. So they're all intentional about putting things in their lives that would help them point to God, that would help them remember. You know, so you read about these people building an altar, and you're like, that sounds weird, right? But to me as a 17-year-old, it's weird for a Christian to have a tattoo, right? 
where we would do well to find things in our faith that point us back to Jesus. And one of the things I've been blessed with is I grew up in a church that also loved the hymns. So what reminds me of the blood of God is when I sing songs like this or when the Spirit brings them to my mind, when I sing, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon a tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. We would do well to not just know Jesus died, but to have reminders in our everyday life that we have a God who's still bringing us home, that we have a God who's still alive, that we have a God who's still moving. Because believe it or not, our faith can get stale. Our faith can feel like just this we're so far apart from God. So we would do well to have these reminders that point us back to the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to then come back to the final witness, and that's the Holy Spirit. And I've said this before, and I'll probably say this for the next 50 years or however long the Lord will have me, you'll have me here. We have to be a people who are choosing to submit to the Holy Spirit every single day. When you say, I'm following Jesus Christ, or I believe in Jesus Christ, it is not a one-day, one-time decision. Submitting to the Spirit means, Lord, this is my hope, but I give it to you. Bless it or destroy it. Lord, this is my dream and what I want to do, but it only has got to happen by your hand, and if it's not what you want, I'm okay with letting it go. How many of us are willing to submit to the Spirit in every relationship, in every interaction? How many of us are willing to submit to the Spirit every single conversation, every single ideology we hold on to? How many of us are not just saying the Holy Spirit is here, but we're willing to put the Holy Spirit in here? How many of us are not just willing to say the Holy Spirit is God, but we're willing to say, I submit to you? The three witnesses that go on forever are the waters of baptism that show that God transforms people. It's the cross that shows that God saves people. And it's the Spirit that works in you. And the last way you can submit to the Spirit is to ask God to open your eyes to what's he doing in this church, what's he doing in your family, what's he doing inside of you, what's he doing in this country, what's he doing in this world. Because if you ask God to open your eyes to that, submitting to the Spirit then is asking God so you can partake in that. I'd like to call up Pastor Esty and his team. We're going to sing a song here at the end called When I Think About the Lord. And what I love about this song is it, it empires me. It makes it okay that I sing Hallelujah. Because what I love about this song is it calls us to say, thank you, God, for what you've done. But my only response is to say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory, of all the honor, of all the praise. And what I hope this morning is as we sing, I'd like to also invite the intercessors up um, to come up for prayer. We would love to pray for you for anything. But as we sing this song this morning, I want us to be reminded that the Spirit has an eternal witness, that the blood is an eternal witness, that the cross is an eternal witness. But this morning, how you live can be an eternal witness to the world. So let's sing about the Lord because he's worthy of all the praise, all the glory, all our hallelujahs. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.
When I think about the Lord, how He saved me, how He raised me, how He filled me with 